welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. If you haven't yet filled out the Back from the Abyss listeners poll, please do so. You can link to that in the show notes. We are giving you all the chance to give us feedback, what we're doing well, what we could improve on, who you are, and also you know, ideas and thoughts for coming episodes. And for those of you who've already filled out the questionnaire, thank you. And there's already been a lot of really helpful feedback and ideas for coming episodes. So thank you. Secondly, I uh, just wanted to say a little bit about um, a comment I got on the Underground Psilocybin Therapist episode. So I have a dear friend who's a therapist, and he's an Enneagram 8 challenger. Surprise, surprise. Seems like everyone in my life is a challenger, <laughs> including my wife, Chris Johnson, my co-conspirator on this project. Anyway, my therapist, good friend, Eat, he said to me, hey, I really like that episode, but why are you platforming illegal activity? He said, because what she's doing is illegal, and you've done this before on your podcast, and um, why are you doing this? And I told him, and I'll just spread this all to you, because I think others might be wondering, I'm all about harm reduction. You know, I'm an addiction specialist, among other things, and... I realize that we're not looking for perfection. We're looking to to do what's going to cause the most good and the least harm. And, you know, underground work is happening. It's happening big time. It's exploding. And I wanted to, if you will, platform a woman, Sarah, who I think is doing really thoughtful, mindful, ethical work and has thought a lot about underground psilocybin work and has been doing it for a decade. And so anyway, that's why I platformed her, <laughs> my dear friend, and uh, keep challenging me. And uh, boy, Chris Johnson keeps challenging me, but these episodes are much better for all the editing thoughts and critiques he gives me. So thanks, Chris. I think my friend's comments are a good lead-in for today's story. Devin found out the hard way that psychedelics can have a very dark side. Her story is a story of discovery and of joy, of connection and dancing and jam bands, and it's also a story of two psychotic breaks, sexual assault, and the eventual grinding realization that psychedelics demand respect. Some further notes on this story. Some of you listeners might find Devin's journey to be irresponsible, reckless, hard to understand. I think she went down a road that she needed to travel. She was a risk taker, a seeker. She was fearless, probably to a fault. But ultimately, she's been able to take her hard-earned lessons and share these with others. She's like that guy in the Netflix documentary, The Alpinist. The difference is that she survived to tell her tales, and she's sharing her story today so that others might not make the same mistakes. A final note, Devin refers to 5-MeO at one point in her story. 5-MeO is 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine, also known as the God molecule, arguably the most powerful and ego-obliterating psychedelic that there is. Michael Pollan writes about his experience with 5-MeO in his book, How to Change Your Mind, and he does a beautiful job of describing the indescribable.
I had gotten really into the Grateful Dead for, through my sister as a child and when I was a little bit um, younger in my teens and been listening to some of the cover bands and there was a band called Further that came out to uh, Pennsylvania where I was in college and a bunch of my friends came out to um, to go with me. I had never met two of them. One of them was a friend and they came to my house. They had costumes and they had a nitrous tank and... I, I had no idea about the music scene at that time, but we went to the show and my friend said, put out your hand and he put liquid acid on my hand and he dropped a little bit of Molly on it and he said, lick your hand. And I had the most heart opening experience of my life that night. Listened to the music in a way that I never had heard Grateful Dead songs. The song Eyes of the World really, really shifted something inside of me. And I had like kind of a really heart opening journey and that was the first time I had a positive experience with psychedelics. And from then on, I started using psychedelics in the music scene on the Northeast Coast of a lot of jam bands, like, you know, dead cover bands, um, STS-9. So a bunch of uh, like the jam band community, but also some electronic shows. And so that's really how it started is like my real use started in through the music scene and and generally positive. And we're generally positive for a few years, yeah. And and I went hard, though. Mm-hmm. I used them a lot. Went to a lot of shows. I was probably taking acid every other week for years. Um, and really without consequences? Or- no, with yeah, no consequences. I did molly. We did ketamine. We did nitrous. I did... Um, Mushrooms were really not happening in that at that time. Like acid was really the main psychedelic with you know MDMA combined and um, SAS as well MDA. But it got to the point where like you know on the third day you need like ten hits of acid because your your tolerance goes up really fast with a lot of that stuff. So there was a time where taking psychedelics was actually like just to keep me awake. Mm. Yeah. But again, interesting that a pretty heavy use for extended period of time without any you know, psychological consequences or even just bad experiences. I think of, you know, being around thousands of people could be a really ecstatic, safe, lovely setting, or it could be a total nightmare. Yeah. And it started out as a really safe, lovely setting. And I would say like the first time that I had that acid, uh, that we call it candy flipping experience was I had been in like a pretty deep depression before that. And after that I had, my heart had opened to all the love that was around me specifically for my family, I really became tuned into the fact that I carried a huge amount of love in me from them. And that, I mean, I'd never, I, till this day, I've never felt as sad as I did before that first trip, because I really didn't think I understood love, like, before that. So the first experience was healing, unintentionally, um, deeply, and, and continues to be, actually. You think you hadn't experienced love because of the way you grew up or what was happening in your home or, or just no, something No, I mean, I had a lot of you? love in my home. I don't think I understood how to receive it. I don't think I knew about open-heartedness. There was love all around me, but it was... And I, could, I think I felt cared for, but I don't think I really understood how to open myself fully to love. And I don't think that's because of any trauma per se. I think, I mean, it could be, uh, you know, I don't have anything that I can really pinpoint, but I think, I think uh, love was confusing. And I think love is confusing in our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, romantic love is kind of what we understand love to be. And 
it was, I think it was just hard for me to really let it all in until that point. And now, even today, if I think about that experience, I can feel that openness in my heart. kind of started seeing that dark underbelly, so to speak, of this scene. And then that just kind of started to kind of happen more and more. I was at a show and a friend snorted some, a bunch, you know, did a bunch of ketamine and um, fell, fell and hit his face, but didn't know, you know, couldn't feel his face. So he came over to me not realizing that his face was the size of like his cheek, he had completely broken his cheekbone. And there was some bone sticking out. And uh, he got a huge, huge um, swelling was building and he had no idea. And I was looking at him like, am I tripping? Like what is going on? People were so disconnected from their bodies. Uh, so that there were these things happening that they were just unconscious and unaware of. My last year of college is when I had my first bad psychedelic experience. I would say it was pretty horrific. I, was in New York City for a concert, and uh, they always have these after parties after you go to these shows. So I went to like an after party on New Year's Eve, and it was in Times Square. And it started at 12 or 1, and it would, you know, it was supposed to go until about 5 or 6 in the morning. I took a bunch of acid. I hadn't done that batch before. And my, we went to the show, me and my a girlfriend, we were having a good time. We left. There were these guys who were flirting with us so we went back to their hotel room but there was a girl with them too and we were all throwing around like the glow stick stuff and something happened I don't know what I got activated in some way uh and I just freaked out I just went to my friend I said we're not safe here we have to leave and I don't think that was true I think that I didn't feel safe and and I just I became very erratic um, I, we left there. I didn't, I, we were in the city. It was, um, New Year's Eve and we were in Times Square and there was like nobody there. It was like desolate, you know, it must've been like three or four in the morning. And I just started running and I don't have any memory of some of these things, but I started having hallucinations of a different life almost. Like I, I became totally dissociated personality wise and, um, had no sense of who I was. Basically it was under the impression I was living a completely different life. It's hard to explain, but it was like I went into a new, a different consciousness almost. And I was terrified. And I was erratic. I was like, I would get, I tried to steal a cab just to drive to just get, I was just trying so hard to get to safety. Got into a cab with this guy. He was creepy, jumped out of a moving car. I just couldn't find a safe place. And my friend was so afraid because she didn't, you know, she wasn't from New York. She was visiting. And so she was like, I can't lose her. I don't know where I'm going. It's She was scared too. So she was trying to chase me down and hold me because I was just running and, and physically just very erratic and had a lot of energy. And I don't remember, but some, my friends that, I called my parents at some point and I think it was like my, my last piece of self that had a sense of self. And I couldn't even really hear what they were saying or what I was saying, but somehow they, my dad knew where I was and he, um, 
he said he was coming to get me. And he, yeah, he, he did. But when he was, as I was waiting, because the new Manhattan was about a 30 minute drive from my house. So some man on the street, some kind man um, held me. He was in a suit. I don't, I, that's all oh. I remember. Um, and he was, he just held me uh, physically until my dad came and I got in the car and the hallucinations and the, the paranoia continued. And it took me, and then after that happened, I was driving home to call back to college after that break, and I was um, th- it was raining and the windshield wipers were going, and I had a flashback and I couldn't see. I was seeing what happened, and so I had to pull over, and the flashbacks kept coming. I was uh, realized I was having PTSD symptoms. I was a psych. Um, I was, you know, psych student in undergrad. So I knew that I was having some kind of symptoms of trauma. So I went to a trauma therapist, very like funny man who would say my name incorrectly, but he, um, he really helped me. He, he was non-judgmental. He, he didn't really have any experience with psychedelics, but he treated it like regular trauma. And we did narrative exposure where I wrote the story, I told the story and we did that until, um, my symptoms, uh, kind of subsided. Um, from that experience. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you could have been hospitalized. I should have been. I mean, it could have been, if I had been picked up by a different person, I would have been hospitalized. Mm-hmm. I was not in my mind. And I know what it's like to lose one's mind. That was the first time. That was the first time. Yeah. So how long did it take for that to heal, to clear, till you felt like you were back to your, your regular way of being? Um, a few months, I would say. Yeah, maybe like four or five six months. I had another experience of losing my mind on psilocybin as well with some friends in a safe place. That one, I was watching a, some kind of documentary or something. And I also had a complete loss of memory. And, um, my friends told me that I was sitting there screaming and that they didn't know what to do. And they were worried about their neighbors getting up and they, you know, and, and I was completely paranoid again and, uh, had no idea who I was or, so that, that happened twice with a complete, I would say, like, um, identity loss. Mm. as I listen to you describe the, the harrowing experience in the streets of New York City and I mean that was so frightening and then you have this other experience with psilocybin again losing your mind I mean I find myself asking I mean, who were you back then I mean you were a risk taker you were fearless I mean who who was that young Devin yeah I think she was a seeker um, I you know I I had had uh, such a, like a, a heart opening, like life changing experience with LSD the first time, and I was seeking, continuing to seek that um, that that level of, of understanding of life and of myself, and my soul was knew there was more to being alive, and I was psychedelics had been the doorway to that previously. So I was just kind of knocking on the only door I knew maybe had the only door that I knew existed to understanding life and understanding my place in being alive. And I think I felt like 
I didn't have any other avenues to explore that, um, that part of myself. And so I just kept kind of going down the same road. I took a break and then I was in, you know, I graduated from college and I uh, took a year to travel. I um, did volunteer work in um, the Dakotas and then I went to Tanzania, taught English to children there. And then I came back to the States and started grad school. And I really just focused on school for a while. I didn't go out, I didn't party, um, but I, I was a, still a huge pot smoker. And then I was doing ketamine, I would say, randomly, recreationally. That was like a safe experience for me. I wasn't afraid of of anything at that point. Yeah. Um, Did you ever get glimmers of, of, I don't know, losing touch with the reality, even just with weed? Because, you know, if you've had a break with reality or a psychotic break, you know, THC can definitely sort of get that going again. Yeah, no, it, it never did. Um, luckily it didn't. It was my only medication. I was working in a really, really traumatized low income community in uh, Canarsie, Brooklyn. That made me uh, need weed to just function. They didn't teach us how to deal with that in, on an emotional level in school, really. I didn't have any grounding techniques. I didn't have any protection. I I didn't know how to do that. So uh, weed was my saving grace, and I'm really glad it didn't cause any more breaks. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sounds like you were functioning and working your way through school and doing important work. Yeah, Despite I was. being you're pretty dependent on it. Yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, I was I was a very I was a very high functioning pothead for for a long time. So it it was kind of just how I was able to kind of get through at that time. Mm -hmm. Did you know that you wanted to be a therapist when you were doing your master's work? Yeah, yeah, I started. Yeah. I was in a I was in a counseling program, so that was it was always always my plan. Even in before undergrad, my plan was to be a therapist. I I loved my therapist when I was a child, and she was super helpful. And so I was like, okay, I know that that's what I'm going to do. And so it was a clear path for sure. So. out here i had this friend we went to a red rock show and he's like let's do you know some stuff and i was like i don't really mess with that anymore i'll take a micro dose of some mdma he was like all right so i took a little bit of mdma nothing much happened i was at the show for a few hours we went back to his place um we were sitting in the hot tub it was beautiful night and we smoked some weed and as soon as i smoked the weed i started having a really intense but positive experience, very psychedelic. And that was my first spiritual experience with psychedelics. I started moving through something that was felt like an initiation almost. And it was um, just felt like I was being, I was receiving a lot of information about, you know, life in a different way. Yeah, initiated into what? I think into, yeah, I felt like it was an initiation into the next stage of my spiritual development with psychedelics. I felt like it was, uh, hey, I can help you in this way if you treat me, you know, a little bit of respect. I, it, yeah, but it was 
confusing too. It was a lot of information. It, you know, I'd never had an experience. I felt like I had a touched with um, kind of a divine being, and I never had that before. So um, it, it, I needed some time to integrate that. And luckily, the friend that was with me was super supportive. I mean, he shepherded me through that night because I I was worried about losing my mind and he was really he held a container i don't think he realized what he was doing but he held this container where it allowed me to explore that space without feeling like i was going to lose my mind mm -hmm. and that was pretty i think integral to allowing that experience to be what it was so after that i yeah i um uh, i was more open to psychedelics and then a friend of mine who i'd met through the east coast burning man scene he said oh you moved to fort collins i know some people who live there you should you should reach out to them and so we connected and they were like you know i was like oh these people are great and we were having lunch and they're like you should come with us we're going to journey weekend we're going to do ayahuasca and some other medicines you should come and i was like i don't i can't come that's this weekend there's no way it's going to happen but things fell into place and i went I didn't know anything about ayahuasca, but it felt like a fuck yes inside my body. And usually I tried to listen to that. So I went up to this house in the mountains and it was just an Airbnb that they had rented. And there was people I didn't know, probably about maybe 10, maybe 12 people. And Doug was coming from California who had the stuff. and But they called him a shaman, but he wasn't a shaman. You know, Doug was like if you're named Doug, you can't be a shaman. No, right? Doug the shaman? No. You can be the guy. He was an old white guy, you know, hippie, long hair, white long hair. Pretty classic. And we went up to this house and the first day we did MDA. And it was just like to get everybody connected. And I didn't know at the time that ayahuasca you should be dieting and you should be doing all these other things. I didn't know that. They were eating bacon in the house. They were eating, I mean, which is like the number one thing you don't eat before you do ayahuasca. I mean, ba bacon? Yeah, pork is okay. like really not, it's, it's one of the things that you just don't eat before you do that medicine. And I didn't know that at the time. I was not, I, I was trusting of this experience. And so, and they're like, oh, and the first thing that we're going to do is this thing called Rumi. And I was like, oh, okay, great. So I don't know what Rumi is, but I'm like, I've done everything else. Like, I'll do this. So they're like, well, who wants to go first? I'm like, I will. So they have this big, oh, what are those? Uh, volcanoes, you know, vaporizer. And Doug fills <laughs> it up with the white stuff and tells me to inhale. So I took a big inhale. And I died. I, I it was five meo. It was the oh, toad. You didn't know. I didn't know. Oh my god! I had no idea. That is really unethical. That is so unethical and yeah. horrible. Yeah. Luckily, my experience was that I experienced divine. Um, I, I completely became one in a way that no words are going to come close to what happened. I have it always um, in my body and in my heart, but it was life-changing i mean and i came out of it hysterically crying i couldn't it was like my whole worldview was shattered my whole understanding of what life was changed that day and i you don't even know these people didn't even know so you're people. just up in the mountains in this house yeah uh yeah doing five methoxy dmt you don't even know and yeah. you're coming out of this and you've been shattered apart with now you're with these strangers and ayahuasca is still to come yeah and then they said when i'm laying on the pad they said you need to roll over someone else's next and i'm thinking i just had 
the most massive experience I think I could ever have. And you want me to roll off this mat so someone else can do that? So I was in pieces and I was looking to these people like, is anyone else like, do they have this experience? And everyone seems so okay, like grounded. And it was like, no, it's fun. And I'm like, that wasn't fun. That was life shattering. That was like earth shattering. That changed my perspective of everything. I needed to spend weeks putting myself back together. And we weren't even halfway done with the weekend. That was the first night. So I was super... There's no one there for you. No one there for me. Ugh. No, no. And the men, and the, the man, the guy who was the, the Doug, he was creepy and he, he, he would hug me and I couldn't tell if he was asking me. He would say like in my ear, like, yes or no. And I wasn't sure, but every time I would say no, because I just was like, I don't know what I would be saying yes to. So I don't want to say yes. So the next day, people were like, we're going to go on a hike. And I was like, I'm staying here. I'm writing. So I journaled. Luckily, I had that like that practice. And I didn't sleep all night. I was afraid if I closed my eyes, I was going to die. So anyway, I... This sounds like a nightmare. It was a nightmare. This is like out of some... Like, it's unethical, psychedelic. And movie. this is what I really want to prevent people from doing. Mm -hmm. Because these people actually thought that they were in alignment and in reverence to medicine. And they felt that they were doing something like important and spiritual. And I think they probably still do. You got spiritually kidnapped. Yeah, kind of. Or just sort of like spiritually raped. Or, yes, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. it felt a lot like that because there was no, here, let me prepare you for, you're about to do the most intense psychedelic of your life and you could potentially have a life-altering experience and we're going to create a container for that. No, there was none of that. There was no processing. I mean, I didn't know what was happening. So that, that was the first day. get the hell out of there yeah i um i think that's a great question <laughs> um i've asked myself that at times too but i would say i and thousands of listeners want to know <laughs> Devin, why didn't you run right. run away from doug yeah well i mean the experience had been so mind-blowing of that five meo it felt like a lot of my questions had been answered when that one experience, despite the trauma of, of kind of not understanding what was happening, there was a sense of that I had touched something that I had been seeking, that I had arrived at some understanding of something that really blew my whole worldview open. It blew my whole world open in a way that it was like, I can't leave. Like, this this finally got to the core of some of my deepest questions about what life is and what I am and, and what it means to be alive. And, and then there's another part that I've asked myself about a lot of my journeys and a lot of like my psychedelic experiences. Why did I keep going back? And there's a part of me that really likes to play with that line of being lost in, in the void into the oblivion Um that that's the secret part of me that's that's this adventurer this this part of me that wants to go into the um ram das calls it the crisper um and to 
and to see if I can come back. Um, and I think that's, there's a spiritual adventure within me that's very driven to uh, play with that line of uh, death and, and void, um, but is also afraid of it. And so I think that fear has kept me alive. <laughs> um, and I think that curiosity has um, maybe enabled me to help others walk that path too. Then there was MDMA and LSD days, and we did that. And I started having some deep LSD experiences that were super uncomfortable and crying. And they, they're also, they were also more novice to psychedelics than I was. You know, they'd only been doing these things probably for two or three years, whereas, you know, I probably had a more than a decade behind me of psychedelic use. So, um, I don't, I think that they were one of those, this is all love and light people, because that's what happens in your first few years of using psychedelics is it is all love and light and it can be. Um, and that's how it was for me too. But the more you use them, the more you see how they can, I mean, psychedelics, they just keep expanding your experience more and more and more into all the parts and, um, not the easiest ones. Then we did the ayahuasca and I'm, I'm the first one to start puking. There was no, there was no ceremony. We didn't do any diet prep. I start vomiting and shitting at the same time. And just like, I'm so out of it. And luckily I, I felt this voice in the medicine and she said, um, I'm going to go, you're not ready. And the, the ayahuasca left me and didn't give me much insider journey. It was kind of like, I'm going to give you the worst, the throwing up and the shitting and the disorient, the, being disoriented, but that's all because you're not respecting me and I'm not going to work with you right now. Mm. And it felt like a big mama energy, you know, and I've felt it before when I've worked with that medicine. So it seems like you would need to go to therapy, not to integrate that, to recover from that. Yeah. To somehow try to rediscover safety after that well i'll also add that that 5meo night um doug just kind of kept giving it to us so it wasn't like you did it once you know that that it was like used like a fun drug almost and we were you know he told us a story of how his girlfriend died in a hot tub on it and then we were in a hot tub using it and it was so strange i remember that was like such a weird disconnect and um and i stayed up and i did more and I was alone with him. And I was in a deep 5-MeO place. And I had been in the hot tub, so I was naked. And I was moving through something. I, I And this is the thing is I don't remember. Um, but I felt Doug um, cross a boundary. I can't tell you what it was because I wasn't fully there. But energetically, I felt something had been crossed. Because I was not... I couldn't see, you know, you can't see, you're not here when you're on 5-MeO, you, you leave. So I wasn't here, but in my experience, there was a sense of some darkness crossing a line. And I woke up naked and alone with him. Um, and I, I didn't, un I, I, to this day, I don't know really what happened. Um, I remember the next day looking in his eyes and being very scared. And um, feeling like he tried to offer me a drug the next day. And I said, no. And he pushed a little bit. And I said, no. Um, 
And someone else heard me say no, and then he stopped. I found out years later that he um, he did molest somebody under five meo. So and, and someone else saw it. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that something might have happened as this maybe was his mo. But I don't really know really what happened to me, and mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. And I I want to add, I don't regret this weekend. I don't regret saying yes. I don't think these were mistakes um my relationship with god is because of that first five meo experience and i say god in a non-religious sense i wouldn't take that back for anything i mean that changed my life i have faith in a way that i've never had faith because of that yes the set and setting were wrong and i'm sure and i've been dealing with the trauma that comes with what happened for since but i don't wouldn't i wouldn't change it and I want to make that clear about all my psychedelic experiences, even the losing my mind in New York City. Like, I wouldn't take these experiences back. Um, they've shaped who I am and how I hold space and the reverence that I hold for medicine work and for keeping people safe. <laughs> forward from this as you said it was life-changing um in a really beautiful way and it was also horrifying and in parts of it you'll never know what may have happened and then um yeah where where do you go after that how do you move forward and integrate that um i mean i i i bought a one-way ticket to sri lanka and backpacked through southeast asia for four months so by myself I had a a trust in myself at that time that I didn't before that because of that experience. I felt like kind of divinely supported um, in a way that I'd never. So that gave me the courage to do that, to trust that. So I would say my my traveling, my journey through Asia was uh, integration in and of itself and, and really building my relationship with myself in a trusting way. And... I have to say, I'm still integrating that experience. And that was five or six years ago. So I mean, I'm still processing what happened. I took a really long break from psychedelics for a while there. So I think that helps too. When you have a big experience, my belief is that integration takes time and it could take a year, two years. So um, I think just giving it time. And then I didn't talk to a therapist about it. I didn't... um, I had a therapist at the time, but it really wasn't top of mind. I just would journal about it. And I was pretty grounded in my spiritual practices at the time. I was meditating a lot and I was, I just kind of came out here. So I was able to, I had women's circles that I was a part of. So I think those, those things helped me process it. But I'll say that I, I'm still, I think I'll spend my life integrating that experience. Now in more recent time, you've, um, in addition to being a psychotherapist, you've started doing underground work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm wondering, uh, I'm, I'm guessing all your experiences have shaped that greatly. Yeah. You know, uh, we had an episode a few weeks ago where an underground therapist talked about how healing from her childhood sexual trauma in, in really positive, painful, but beautiful ways with really ethical, uh, connected, um, moral 
people, you know, led her to this work. But you know, you had such a different path. Yeah. Like again, there was joy and connection and heart opening, and there was uh, there was deep violation and um, I mean, just horror. Yeah. And then yeah. So tell me about how that's led you to what you're doing now. Well, so after that, you know, that weekend experience, I was like, okay, no, fuck that stuff, and um, had one more experience in LSD that was overwhelming and just was like, all right, I'm done. I'm just, I can't do this anymore. So I spent the year, you know, not doing any psychedelics. And then about a year and a half when I I got back after the journey or whatever, sorry, after I came back from Asia, I was in a women's circle and I met a woman who I became really close friends with. And she shared with me that she was um, sitting with ayahuasca with a woman in um, California. And uh, she wanted me to come and I was like, I don't know. I don't trust that. Like, I don't think I ever want to do that again. And, you know, and she's like, well, it's a woman who's holding it. And I was like, okay. And she's like, and she really holds it in reverence. It's a, it's a ceremony. Like you're going to be held. It's not going to be like what happened to you. So she was like, and you know, why don't you and I do some mushrooms and I'll show you what it's like to do it in this other setting and to do it in a contained, calm way. And we're not going to do an eighth of mushrooms. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So we did like two grams in the forest and she made this whole ceremony. And I had the most loving, positive experience and it was really healing. And I even had like some, you know, divine energy um, come to me. And, uh, I was like, wow, this is different. This feels really different. And I was like, all right, I'll try the ayahuasca with this woman. So I went to California, did a retreat weekend, and it was, I mean, drastically different. We had the diet. We had a huge ceremony. It was a woman-led. There was the right music, you know, the ikaros. You know, all of that was, she's trained by an um, indigenous um, healer in Ecuador. And so she trained with him for 10, I think 10 years um, before I sat with her. So she had a lot of reverence for the medicine and she had been really taught by, um, by people who'd been carrying this for many, many generations. So that experience was drastically different and it was hugely helpful and beautiful. And yeah, I vomited and shat and, you know, the typical ayahuasca and, you know, I was uncomfortable at times and disoriented, but ultimately it was, beautiful and and i realized oh this is that medicine and actually i felt the the mother energy come and say like no this Mm -hmm. is right it's interesting it took years many years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of psychedelic experiences before you had a curated yeah thoughtful planned container with ritual with preparation with yeah with mindfulness yeah yeah i would say it it was 10 or 10 or 12 years of not having that before I had that in psychedelics. So when I had that experience, it changed everything. And I realized this was the missing piece was the reverence, the container, the ceremony, the the setting. I mean, all of it, um, having a guide, having someone there who is also holding the medicine with that same reverence and, not just trying to have fun, but having intention, you know, being really intentional with this. And that was 
life-changing. And so from then on, my, my friend and I, we did mushroom journeys in between our ayahuasca um, ceremonies. We would do them together. We'd have these ceremonies where we'd sit for each other or with each other and have these really powerful, beautiful experiences on, you know, not a lot, like not like four or five grams, but like two grams um, of, of uh, psilocybin. And those were those were really loving and powerful experiences and they really started to help me grow and integrate actually some of those more challenging experiences that I had had previously, which is funny. I think having enough time of not doing psychedelics in between and then using them in a different way was really helpful. How do you understand uh, ritual and ceremony as changing everything? Someone once described um, ceremony or ritual as as bookends. And so I really like to think about it that way, you know, that it marks the beginning. We're stepping out of our mundane, regular life, and we're entering into a sacred space. So here's a threshold, and I'm going to walk over that threshold, and I'm creating that threshold, that that line that separates the rest of my life and the, you know, the grocery shopping and the working and the clients. It separates that, and it creates this this um, safe space, the container that can hold whatever comes in this space and yeah, it almost feels like I have a ring around me, you know, like you like in, in some like witchcraft, you know, you put a ring of salt in a circle. It felt like that, you know, it was protection. I would say, you know, a, a, an intention also is it was, it was a mental protection with the intention of, with a specific intention, it helped, it helped with a mental container, not just a physical container as well. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I doing this? And it showed respect for the medicine. And I think, these experiences with psychedelics, they're mutual. It's between you and the, especially when you're working with plants, it's between you and the plant. And it becomes a conversation. Um, if, if you don't know that you're having a conversation, you can't ask for what you need and you're not going to get much of what you need. Yeah. I like the word respect that, you know, these are such powerful substances and such powerful experiences that if there's not a baseline level of respect, that things could really go off off the tracks. Yeah, I think so. Um, I received a lot of experiences previously that were kind of telling me you're not respecting this. And, and I think that's what I came to. It's something I came to years later when I started using things um, ceremonially and with ritual was um, that those experiences were partly because I wasn't really respecting what I was engaging with. I wasn't really understanding how far these things can take you. And I was thinking they were fun and and they can be fun, but they also aren't always. And I didn't know how to make space for that in the way that I used to do it because I don't think I really knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then tell me about your decision and path to start doing this work with others. Yeah. Um, It really wasn't a decision. It was a invitation, I would say. Uh, you know, my friends had known that I was, I had been doing psychedelics a long time and that um, I started to do them more ceremonially. And I had some friends who were like, would you hold space for me? Because at first people were like, can I just get some mushrooms? And I was like, yeah, but 
what, what kind of sentence setting are you going to have? You know, and I talked them through it. So I was kind of coaching people on how to make, a, you know, and just friends, not, not like clients or anything. And, and so someone's like, would you sit with me? You know, I said, okay. And then more friends said, would you sit for me? And then more friends of friends said, you know, I know I had this great experience with you. Can you, can you hold space for this person and, and that person? And it started just becoming like people telling other people, telling other people. And I just had to ask, you know, okay, internally, is this a yes or is this a no? And it just kept being a yes. So that's how it really started was, um, I felt like there was an offering from the, the outside world and I had a choice to say yes or no. It's not something I pursued actively, I would say, mm-hmm. nor is it something I pursue. Um, there's no advertising. There's no, you know, I don't tell people to tell people. Um, I don't ask people to do that. It's not part of, I'm not necessarily trying to get people to come do that with me. It's more people who are seeking it, who know someone who knows me can access that experience. Mm-hmm. How do you think about preparation, sort of mindful, thoughtful, respectful preparation for psilocybin and also the the set and setting for the actual days? Well, I do a lot of prep around integration. Like why? I mean, not integration, um, intention. Like, why are you doing this? You know, why now? And what's going on in your life? And so just kind of setting that, um, that intention uh, and I let people know that intention and expectation or outcomes are very different. So like expectations are like, you know, I want to be cured of my depression when I finish this. And that's an outcome, you know, that you want. That doesn't really work with psychedelics because they don't necessarily like the results are not as clear. It's a lot, you know, it's, it's a collaboration between you and the medicine so if you want your depression to go away it's the medicine might ask you okay what do you need to do to do that i think setting that intention and the awareness that you you can't uh, be too outcome oriented i also let people know that medicine speaks to us in symbols um very much like dream work so uh taking things literally in psychedelic journeys is not always accurate although it really depends on you as the individual and then helping people connect with the inner healer intelligence and finding out language that works for them around that so um, prepping someone to be like has there ever been a time in your life that you've had like an intuitive like knowing about something even if it's like i know that i want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right now you know (laughs) just like helping people connect with like that part and and how they can bring that awareness of that inner guided self um, into the medicine work. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big piece of what yeah. I prep with. day again give us maybe an image so we can imagine like what what it's like to you know be in the room with you and both sounds and sights and and what sort of container are you creating yeah i well first i do a little bit of a diet i tell people um because i yeah no bacon no bacon Uh, what we're not going to work with you no bacon (laughs) forget that are you kidding me yeah exactly just bacon in the morning (laughs) 
Um, so I tell people like, just be mindful about what you eat. Um, not like, you know, restrictions or anything, but if you can eat more whole foods, less processed foods, and this is about like kind of almost clearing an internal space in your body to show some respect and some willingness to edit your life a little bit for this medicine experience to show that you're kind of paving the way, um, you're rolling out the red carpet for this, um, for this experience and really respecting it and honoring it. And so changing a little bit about how you eat, not watching lots of news. So you don't, you know, deal with a lot of that imagery maybe in the beginning. So that's a big part of the prep. And then I have people fast, um, at least four hours before their journey. So usually just not eating anything the day of, or if we're starting later, then they'll just have to, um, uh, have a light breakfast. And then, uh, you know, no, no pot smoking, uh, 24 to 48 hours before or after, and no other psych- no other use of drugs or psychedelics. And obviously if they're on any meds, you know, I always tell them that like they need to talk to their doctor, certain meds are not going to work, SSRIs, SNRIs, those things don't do so well with um, psilocybin. So I recommend that if they are on those that we touch back, you know, in six months or something, when they, if they decide they want to wean off, and if that's appropriate with their medical provider, I don't make recommendations about what people do with their medication. So once they come, we, we I have a ceremony space in my home. And I explain to them what's going to happen step by step. I talk about, you know, consent and touch and uh, how, you know, I won't touch them at all. I don't do a handhold. If they really need it, they can reach out for it and I let them know. Um, or I can do a shoulder touch, but I don't uh, do any hugging. I don't do any massaging. I don't do, you know, that's really, really clear. I also talk about... Um, is that partially because of what you've been through? It is. And also, um, I mean... It's it's not MDMA. You don't need to be cuddled, you know. <laughs> uh, I like. I mean, for me, and this is you know, we all have our own unique relationships with the medicines we work with. My relationship with psilocybin is such that what I offer is someone to have an internal experience with themselves, and the less I can get involved in that, the better. I try to stay out of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I let them know that um, the music does have lyrics, and it's they're intentional to um, help somebody come back to their heart. And since the medicine I work with is mixed with cacao, I really do think about it as uh, as a heart medicine. And the music is in line with that. And I let them know that I do some live singing, some drumming, some singing bowls, that they keep an eye mask on. And if they don't like a song, they can change it or they can tell me to stop. And that I encourage them to do as much internal looking as possible. And then I'm here to process in between when they have the kind of the waves where they're not really in the depths of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we do intention setting. I uh, usually say a little um, protection kind of statement that I learned from Sandra Ingerman with shamanic work that I've done. Um, I did a shamanic journeying training with her. So uh, I use that as a part of the container. I also ask people, what do you want to be part of this container? How do you want the ceremony to look? Do you have certain phrases or, you know, practices that you want to integrate into this? So we co-create a ceremony that's, you know, mine and theirs. What about, do you have people, like when you're integrating, when the waves have died down, do you ever have eye shades off or do you think it's important to keep the eye shades on to keep it internal some people I, some people take them off and, and i think that's fine for a little while but then when i notice that people are kind of talking a lot and getting out of that and i know that we're not done i encourage them like hey this might be a good time to go back in and you know try putting the eye shades on again and 
So there's waves. I think there are times that it's okay that they get up and talk and stretch. And a lot of people do yoga and I have a lot of space in the room for people to do that. So, you know, they'll do some yoga. I'll do some yoga. I mean, I'm sitting there for like four to six hours. So I'm certainly, um, I'm also needing to stretch and move. And so that happens. I wonder um, if you might compare and contrast, this sounds like a high school essay, <laughs> compare and contrast ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and psilocybin-assisted work, because you do both. And um, I think it might be really interesting for people to hear your approach, how you think about those substances differently, how the space looks different. Yeah, again, if we were to like have a nanny cam on you working with each of these, like how do you work differently? How are they similar? Well... The music is really different. Uh, that's a big, I would say the biggest difference is the music and the length of time. But both are wearing eye masks and both are listening to music and going inward and having that inward process. I would say they can look similar. They feel different for me. One feels like um, I'm holding a ceremony that's got a really strong container and I'm I'm also taking a very small amount of psilocybin when they're in that space so that I can be tuned into the medicine. Not enough to have, like it's a sub-psychedelic dose, um, but I do do that. So that that's a difference, the length of time. But they can look very similar, mm-hmm. you know? And what about... You know, ideally, like someone comes to you and says, um, I'm really interested in doing one or both of these. I mean, do you have ways of thinking about who mm-hmm. benefits more from ketamine-assisted work versus psilocybin-assisted work? I I, I do. I, I can sense it. It's a little bit difficult to explain. I just have a knowing. Uh, there are people that I think are very anxious and that psilocybin might not be the best for them or at least the best start for them whereas ketamine might i think with really major depression uh the first line of defense i like ketamine for because it really helps with symptoms and it's easy to kind of give someone there's you know the time restraint isn't as major you know you have two hours and two and a half hours and you're able to get back to your day. Whereas a whole day of, you know, mushroom work is what it'll be. So I think that that plays a role in who I'll also say, I don't do psilocybin with my clients. So I won't give anyone who's in my practice psilocybin underground. Mm -hmm. Uh, That only is for other people in my life. So that's, I think, also a big distinction is people who are coming to me through my practice who want a therapist, they will, you know, I will, if they are appropriate for ketamine, that's what I'll do. Mm-hmm. I won't offer them psilocybin, even if I think it's useful for them. I'm careful to protect those two parts, you know, that part of my life. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, lose my license, yeah. you know. Right. Do you tend to think of one as being in better for- for trauma in general, I know trauma is a huge word. It means a lot of things, but you know, ketamine versus psilocybin, or do you think of them as sort of similar kinds of catalysts to, to get to the core of trauma? 
honestly, I think MDMA is the best for the, getting the core of trauma. Uh, I think psilocybin would be better than ketamine. I don't think ketamine is great for trauma work. I think it's can bring things up not in a nice way. And I don't, I don't personally love to do it for trauma. I think that ketamine is great for major depressive disorder and dysthymia, um, suicidality. I really like it for that. And I think it works really well when that's the main issue. Even if there is trauma there, like attachment trauma or more complex um, trauma, I think the ketamine can work. Acute trauma, I'm not sure how I feel about ketamine. Whereas psilocybin, I think can be helpful with trauma. Not as helpful as MDMA, but I do think that it can be very helpful with people who have trauma. And I'm trained um, in... uh, I was trained to work with children who had experienced sexual trauma and adults who had experienced sexual trauma. So I can hold that space and I have the qualifications to do so. I don't recommend people who are not uh, trained to deal with trauma to do hold psychedelic space with people who are, who have acute trauma histories. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. now I also do some teaching around set and setting and ceremony. And I think what I really feel is my mission now uh, with psychedelics, having had both, um, you know, contained experiences and uncontained experiences is highlighting the importance that if you are accessing this for healing, that is so, it is so crucial to have set and setting and a guide. I personally won't do psychedelics without a guide if I'm doing a you know, a dose for healing, if that's my intention. So I really encourage people to consider um, who they can trust to hold space and somebody who's skilled in that. And if you're doing this for healing, making sure that you have a container because you could end up having trauma from your psychedelic use. And that's not talked about enough. We talk about the light and love of psychedelics and how amazing they can be. And they can also be horrifying and they can also cause you to have trauma, me. And they can also be earth shattering to the point of it being difficult to put yourself back together to function. And peak experiences are sometimes very difficult to integrate without support and without somebody who can help guide you through the whole process, the prep, the experience, the integration. I can't highlight enough that if you are doing this for healing, make sure that you have a container and make sure that you have a appropriate guide who is experienced and preferably has some mental health training or at least some awareness around how to work with difficult mental, um, you know, mental experiences. And who has reverence and respect for the medicine and has 
had both good and bad experiences. Uh, sitting with people who've only had good experiences are not going to be able to help you make sense of a really difficult experience. In fact, there can be a narrative that, oh, you had a bad experience. So that was your fault. That's your, you know, your thing. Like there can be a lot of guilt and shame, which I had around having negative psychedelic experiences. Like what's wrong with me? Everyone around me is having all these, you know, unicorn and fairy experiences. And here I am going into like the deep despair of the collective universe at times. And, and that really isolated me from the community because nobody wants to talk about this other part. And I really, really want to have more conversations like this where we're exploring and discussing the trauma and the darkness that can come through. And I'm grateful for those experiences. I've learned a lot about myself, but it would have been very different if I had had somebody there to say, let's process this. Let's talk about this. I'm here to keep your body safe while you go through this. And I probably would have been able to face some of those fears that I couldn't face at those moments. A friend of mine recently sent me um, something from a book saying that in psychedelic experiences, this terror that we encounter can be worked with. And, and I think that's true, but it can only be worked with when we feel supported and held within our physical bodies and safe to explore that darkness. And if we don't have that container that allows us to have the, the grounded... Um, the grounding that we need to be able to go off kind of like attachment, you know, like knowing that mom is going to be there when you come back. Um, that makes a kid safe to explore the outside world. Well, it's the same thing with psychedelics. You know, I need to know that there's something tethering me, someone, some, some container that's tethering me back to the world so that I can go off and lose my mind and explore what that is like, explore that void space and do it in a way that helps me integrate and bring that part back so that I can engage in my journey to wholeness. Otherwise, those parts get fragmented and they get stuck. And I think that there are still parts of me that might be stuck from old experiences that I'm still trying to integrate. I think the most important takeaway from Devin's story is that psychedelics demand respect. They can heal and they can harm. And it's up to us to create safe contexts for use. Devin's story makes me ponder this whole question of medicalization versus legalization of psychedelics. Now we allow people to make huge and often life-altering mistakes with legal alcohol and weed. Should we do the same thing with psychedelics? Devin came out rather surprisingly unscathed, but I think that wouldn't be the case for many others if we don't have some sort of ritualized, contextualized societal container for these powerful substances. Medicalization is coming, but what about free-range legalized use? The libertarian part of me wants to allow for individual cognitive liberty to decide one's own path like Devin did, but the physician part of me that part of me wants to keep these substances protected, to be used primarily in therapeutic or psycho-spiritual contexts, so that we don't have a rerun of the 1960s, leading to chaos and a return to psychedelic prohibition. <laughs>